Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. Everything you'll ever need to know about food. Brought to you by Gaganau. In this, the fourth episode in our Kitchen Conversations series, we bring you, in our opinion, New Zealand's best chef. A chef that is extremely driven and super focused on delivering the food story of the central Otago landscape, connecting you to season and place through a stunning representation of the New Zealand food culture. New Zealanders, in general, get my food because my ideas come from growing up in New Zealand and things that I've eaten as a kid, so they remember things that I remember. A little tasting for you through the life of award-winning New Zealand chef Vaughan Mabee coming up in just a tick. But first... News Bites. The Black Lives Matter movement has raised an interesting reaction in the consumer market from major brands. As a result, Afghan biscuits, Eskimo pie ice cream, Chico's and Redskin lollies are all to take on new identities on our supermarket shelves. Victoria University of Wellington's Marketing and International Business School head Val Hooper says it's been a huge wake-up call as brands scramble to reassert their commitment to respect. Look, I think it's very much a matter of the company and the company's values and also where they read their target market and customers as being in terms of these elements. Um, Because the, the name of a brand is a really, really strong element And in fact, you could lose a whole lot of brand value if you take a name away from something and you give it some other name that your target market does not recognize. So that is a risk. However, for instance, Nestle have indicated that doing away with names like Chico's um, aligns more easily and appropriately with their core values. Now, some might be very sceptical and say, oh, yes, it's all well and good. Now, when there's a big fuss about it, now you say, oh, yes, this is important. But before there was the fuss and before the whole George um, George Floyd episode, you didn't do anything about it. Um, You know, that's, that's rather opportunistic. However, there's also the aspect of, you know, you don't see what is staring you in the face. While they might have these really, really good anti-discriminatory values that permeate their human resources management and and many of their systems, what is so very obvious they don't see and they probably didn't see the names of good old favorites, Um, you know, these product lines that have been around for a very long time. And it was this wake-up call which alerted them to the fact that, my Mm. gosh, we are perpetrating this ourselves. So we better do something about it. Um, what has been mentioned, you know, in, in respect to this targeting is there has been a lot of negative targeting of certain um, racial groups, particularly. Um, I know the tobacco companies targeted black smokers, for instance, with different composition of their, um, you know, tobacco mix in their cigarettes. Um, and, and certainly with the face creams and cosmetics. Now, there's been quite a bit about cosmetics and not targeting any specific group um, specifically. However, with cosmetics, you know, you have different skin compositions and therefore it is appropriate to target certain groups. But it doesn't necessarily say that these people are targeted because they are black per se. 
it's because they've got a certain skin composition. Mm. Similarly to hair, um, you know, hair is constructed differently. So Asians have a different hair structure to Eurocentric um, descendants to Afro-Americans and to, to Africans. So specific targeting with products that would best suit their needs is fine in that regard. And in fact, um, Band-Aid has come up with a plaster which now takes cognizance of the fact that not all skin is flesh-colored, mm. you know, um, and, and that in itself, flesh-colored, whose flesh, um, you know, white person's flesh or black person's flesh, but they're now coming out with darker um, toned bandages, which is appropriate. So I think one's got to be sensitive, sensitive to the values of your company. And I think that is really, really important. You've got to be true to those values and what your company stands for. And sometimes these sorts of incidents are a wake-up call because we've inherited values in many instances and they come from decades of uh, perpetuated and familiarity, if you like. And sometimes it takes a good, you know, hard call like this to revisit really, really important values. Perhaps a positive of this is that it's brought to the forefront how important the language that we use and the language that these brands use, how important that is to our cultural awareness and our sensitivity. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of these things are just relics from the past that we just use because we're familiar with them and we don't really think about them. Cuisine Bites. Brought to you by Gaganau. Amersfield Bistro in central Otago is home to New Zealand's Cuisine Good Food Award winning Chef of the Year, Vaughan Mabee. So it stands to reason that this superb winery restaurant should be on your radar as one not to miss. In the lead up to the awards last year, Vaughan had held the title of New Zealand's most innovative chef for two years running. Vaughan went on to lead his talented team to taking home three hats at last year's Cuisine Good Food Awards. And you know, one of the great pleasures about producing this podcast is that there's always a hell of a journey and a terrific story to tell when it comes to the people behind the food that we eat. This one's a ripper. When I was really little, I was in Auckland and about halfway through my childhood, we, my family, well, I was living with my mum and my dad, when they broke up, uh, my dad had moved up to uh, the Bay of Islands. He was working as a captain sailor out of um, Opoa. And when me and my brother, when we were young, but like 12, 13, we were quite naughty. So my mum said, you have to go and live with your father. And she pulled us out of school. We were in Auckland. And then we had to finish up school in uh, Kirikiri in the Bay of Islands, which was quite nice because it went from like, having some nice bottom field fights at Auckland Grammar across from mountains, <laughs> mountain Eden prison to uh, all of a sudden being surrounded by um, girls, which we uh, realised that's not cool what we used to do. So we were, it was way more fun sneaking out and having a cigarette in the bush and a kiss. So we loved it. Ah, so you haven't changed much then, really? Uh, yeah, maturity levels have gone up at least five years since I was 14. <laughs> In, in this industry in particular, how did you sort of get started? I hear it all started with washing dishes. Is that true? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I had a few jobs when I was young, uh, washing dishes and working in kitchens and helping my dad on 
uh, he was doing some kind of high-end charters and stuff and uh, watching people cook on boats. And, I mean, I, I didn't finish high school. I was I was already kind of planning on being a chef when I was in my teens, you know. But no actual formal training? You went straight into it? Um, yeah, I just went straight into the kitchen. No formal training. I mean, I did, like, things after that, you know, like I did apprenticeships and restaurants and stuff like that, but, like, when I was a bit older. But uh, I never went to culinary school and stuff like that. What was the apprenticeship? Where was that? No, my, my first real restaurants that I worked in were Chin Chin's and uh, Kalani Street Brasserie. I think that's what it was called. It used to be kind of the cool Takapuna place back, way back in the day. Oh, right. I think that was in like nine, the late 90s when I was a teen, I was working there. God, there wouldn't have been much then in Takapuna I, then, would there? I don't think so, really. There wasn't a huge amount of things. I mean, that restaurant, it was a pumping place way back, way back. Um, and then I was at Chin Chin's, and it was when those uh, Tonchi used to own it. What is his name? Tonchi Farak. I think he's still into restaurants now, but he's gone to the Australia, the Farak brothers. So I was there, and then after that, I wanted to um, learn more, so I, I moved overseas, I think, when I was young. I was super young. Uh and I went to California, kind of went around a few restaurants in California. I was working for one of my favorite chefs ever, uh, Emilio Bertoli. He taught me a lot. I was working with him for a while. And then I worked in um, some nice hotels and did some stages in fancy restaurants and kind of bumped around uh, the States for quite a while, eh? about nine years or something. Oh, wow. And then from there, um, was and, it on to uh, San Sebastian? Uh, I took some jobs in California before I moved on to there. Like I, I had a cool role. I was executive chef of the La Valencia Hotel in the beautiful La Jolla in California, and that was um, I think I was way too young for that job. I didn't really know what I was doing. I did all right though. What were you doing there? Uh, what was, was the role? Uh, I was executive chef, so mm. I was running five restaurants. Oh, wow. I had um, I had Cafe La Rue, the Wailing Bar and Grill, the Mediterranean Room. Uh, La Sala Tapas Bar and uh, the acclaimed Skyrim restaurant. Far right. And how old were so, you then, boy? Uh, 20, 26 or something. Yeah, so you were going hard already. Yeah, I was way too young. All my sushis were in the, what, their 40s. Mm, mm. And I was just, uh, <laughs> they were like, who's this crazy kid from New Zealand? Uh, but yeah, after the States, I went and worked in beautiful. Uh, well, it's outside of San Sebastian. It's called Lazate. I, I love working there under Martin Brzezitegi, and I spent quite a bit of time there. What era would that have been? That would have been quite a while after the new sort of wave of Spanish takeover, wouldn't it? Yeah, the, it was kind of when the, the wave of Spanish was dying off, I would say. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was right before our bully closed. Mm. His restaurant really wasn't like that. It was more about... I mean, there was there was some of the kind of molecular tricky uh, things going on there. Um, but they'd really kind of moved it, on from that, more, hadn't they? Yeah, I, I don't think he was really hard out into that. He was his food was progressive and um, kind of forward thinking of, but still of real good kind of classic um, refined Basque uh, flavors, you know. Yeah, so I was working there, and then. Uh, I met a couple of people from uh, Noma and Renee came and dined at Martine and uh, 
I had the opportunity to go and uh, do a small stage there in Noma, and that was kind of cool because it was so different to what I had seen before. You know, I'd never really I bet it was. kind of seen that style of cuisine. And like, I think when I walked in there, at first I was a little bit confused. And, you know, when you, you leave this big kind of um, Spanish monster restaurant, and, it's, you know, you, you come out of there, like, all kind of cocky and, like, feeling like, you know, you know quite a few things. And then you turn up at Noma and I was like, oh, shit, actually, wow, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. <laughs> right right back down <laughs> to reality like, you go. I was super confused because I, I was working in pastry there for a couple of months and then they gave me the opportunity to be chef to party of snacks. And I was so confused because all the foraging, there was just so many different um herbs and stuff on that station at the time there was one snack that had like 14 different forage herbs on it and half of them I'd never seen before and they were in Danish names like Grad Hans and all these like little sea things and I was super confused and I I couldn't remember them so I had to make like this little book where I put all the herbs inside a book and put like clear celly tape on top of them. So you could, yeah, and like, them. and then just catalog them. And I was always looking through that book all the time, trying to remember what everything was. I was only there for a short amount of time. I think just enough to kind of get into the, um, you know, just learn a few things and kind of get um, the kind of um, beautiful way that uh, Renee was thinking back then. I mean, but when I was there, there was only. I don't know how many chefs they have there these days, but there wasn't that many. There was probably about 16 or so. You know, this is in uh, 2009 into 2010. So it was a cool time to be there because it was the first time that they won number one in the world. Yeah. It was cool to just see that someone works so hard and so passionate and drives a team into his way of thinking to be able to get to that point to where, that you know, or you got to where he got. It was quite emotional. Uh, seeing that happen as someone that have been just been doing it for so long. Yeah, can I just ask because I know yeah. that everybody will be wanting to know this because you hear so many stories. What was it like in Red Zeppi's kitchen? Was it was it fun? Was it really serious? I've heard you know stories that it was pretty grim at times in um, those days. He was pretty pretty driven. Yeah, I mean it was it was you know I started there at the end of '09, so I think back then. Renee was like super focused, eh? Mm. I don't think he's exactly like that anymore. No. He seems a lot more kind of um He's mellowed with laid age. Back. Yes. <laughs> I'm gonna say laid back. I don't wanna you know, um but you know, he was he was full on, you know, and um but you know, I think as a chef that is driving himself to where he wanted to be, you have to be, eh? You have to keep yourself like that. And um I loved working there. I thought it was awesome, and I and I met so many uh, great friends that have moved on to do so many great things from the guys that were in there when I was there. So, can I just give one second? Sure. What's up? Yeah, do like some little little bits, maybe with the snacks. Give some oysters to start as well. Okay, give it a two. With yeah. the horseradish, just one each, and then do the, the do the eel inside the thing with the smoke and all that. Okay. You know, make it real nice for it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do that now. Yeah. All right. Sorry about that. That's all right. Customer always comes first. So all of that, then you've obviously done quite a bit of travelling and been away from home for quite some time by the sound of it. So when did you come back to New Zealand? 
I think after there, I I went back to the States for a while and um, I kind of got to a point where, because I'd already been a chef before and then I'd gone through quite a few years of working under people after I'd already been a chef, you know, but I, I think because I was a chef when I was young, I felt like I still needed to learn a lot more before I was a chef, so I kind of reversed myself and, um, you know, just wanted to be a slave for a little bit longer, you know, um, just to learn a few more uh, tricks. I went back to the States and I hung out there for a little bit. I didn't know what I wanted to do in terms of where I wanted to go and I, I did go back to New Zealand and I I thought to myself, why do I not live in New Zealand, you know? Because mm. I, I hadn't lived here in over 10 years or more. And I, you know, when you're like a kid and you're, I, honestly, when I left New Zealand, I was like, I'm, I hate New Zealand. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm leaving New Zealand. And you come back and you're like, hold on a second. This is way nicer than living where I've been living, you know what I mean? You've got to travel to be able to find out how much you love about where you come from. Yeah. So anyway, I went to my brother's wedding. Uh, my father and my brother, they cornered me on my dad's boat and they said to me, you are going to be the chef on dad's boat. And I looked at my brother and I said, no, I'm fucking not. And then my dad goes, yes, you are, because you have been gone for more than a decade and no one's seen you, you never talked to us, and you are going to be the chef on the small cruise ship, I'm going to be the captain, and your brother is the manager of game fishing. And I said to them, there's no way in hell I will ever work with you two on a boat. I said, one, because we're all alcoholics, Two, this is not going to fly with what I want to do with my future. Anyway, we had a few drinks and then I was off on a cruise ship with my brother and my father. <laughs> the yeah, I think it was like the kind of best job I ever had in my life because um, there was me and a couple of other guys working under me in the kitchen and there was only 12 guests on the boat and it was kind of high end and it was just so much fun. Mm. Like. My, me and my brother would go game fishing, catch tuna and, you know, you'd bring it back and I'd cook that up and it was just like, it was easy work mm. compared to what I was used to. Yeah. But also I get to spend time with my brother and my father up in the tropics and it was pretty relaxed and I would never imagine that I would do something like that. Like I like being on the land. I always thought, how do they work uh, their lives, captaining and fishing and, you know, racing yachts and stuff. You know, I quit oppie sailing when I was six years old and my dad was trying to get me to be a sailor like he was. And I um, quit outside of Rangitoto in the club because I puked in my optimist when I was six. And that was my that was my last extent of uh, sailing. I, 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 I was not, not really good at it, eh? And my dad was just, like, really disappointed. But, um, you know, it's not for everyone. Uh, <laughs> you tried. But, yeah, so I, I did that with them, um, and I just kind of relaxed, you know, and I I, I had, had a couple of um, seasons with them. I did one in New Zealand, I did one in Vanuatu, and then I, um, you know, I, I just was looking in, 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 in the paper for a job. I just saw um, they were looking for a, a chef down here in um, Otago, I called them up and then they flew me down and then I, I, I've been here ever since. So, you know, it was a bit rocky for me here, to be honest. Like, I didn't have the same 
uh, how do I say this nicely? Um, I kind of looked at the way a restaurant is on a different angle to everybody that I first worked with when I worked here. Yep. And it wasn't that fun, but, you know, I left here for a bit, little bit, but I won't tell you everything about that. And then I came back here and, um, you know, with a promise that um, their goal is my goal. And uh, now I, 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 I'm loving it being here again. And I have been for years now, but I just can't imagine living anywhere else in the world now. I'm addicted to living in uh, Otago. Vaughan, there must have been yeah. some sort of um, connection then with the owners and with you. If you went away and you came back, then they must have seen a spark in you or something in you that they really wanted to invest in. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really good friends with the owner and, you know, he's kind of like family to me now. I, I love the way he thinks. He's on the spot, you know, mm. and you never know which corner he's looking at. He's quite interesting character of sorts, uh, very... Um, He's different, and I like people like that. So I had a period there where I was basically doing nothing for a while. I was trying to do stuff, and I was really into it, and then I got really kind of dark there for a bit. Then I came back, and I now I'm pretty good. So there we go. So when you say dark, do you mean you kind of just went through a period where you really were struggling and you just didn't want to cook anymore? Or Yeah, I think so. Like you, sometimes you reach a limit when you're a chef and you just don't know what you want to do next. And I kind of, I got to that and I felt like New Zealand wasn't going to be the place for me anymore mm. again. Then I thought, well, where do, I don't want to go anywhere else though. So I was a little bit kind of confused as to, you know, anything in my head would be like, living in Alaska or something like that, you know, so I don't have to talk to anyone. But um, I've become more social since those times. And, uh, you know, I do interviews and stuff now, so that's good. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Amersfield because you've got an incredible menu there. Hunting and foraging play a huge part in your food. I like to use wild meat. And I am a hunter, but... I don't use the meat that I hunt. Yeah, we, we use a lot of wild game. So we use a lot of like fallow deer and red deer and a lot of wild uh, pig and, um, you know, different other wild animals, which I hunt a lot. But, you know, technically I can't use them on the menu because it's against the law. Yeah, of course. But we work with guys that, you know, like Aratar and Fair Game and uh, other guys that actually hunt the the animals that we're asking for. So uh, foraging is a big part of us, but definitely not right now. Uh, everything's kind of dead around us <laughs> because not... of the snow and shit, and it's really fucking cold. Not a great deal to choose for at the moment. If you wanted to forage like ice or snow <laughs> or like rocks, uh, yeah, no, nah, okay. not too much. So this I time of the year... We uh, tend to use a lot of things that we've preserved, like we've, yes. we're using, um, you know, we've got wild um, red deer on the menu right now, and it's paired with um, pickled uh, blueberries that we made last year inside the Pinot barrel with the Pinot Noir vinegar. Yes. And yum. so we use, like, things from the season before with the dishes right now because we're quite picky about using products that are only close around us. So it's quite tricky 
this time of year to get things right and balanced and fresh because the menu tends to be really protein driven at this time of year. Mm, but mm. then again, we've still got, you know, your long course vegan menu on the menu as well. So it, you've got to kind of think outside the box a little bit to produce a menu that's really balanced with acidity and freshness as opposed to just um, game and uh, fish, you know. So um, it's always a bit of a bump. But yeah, you've taken some great steps with the stuff that you've been doing out the back there, huh? You know, like I mean, the power sausage. Yeah, we we try to um, work with a lot of uh, seafood and get them um, and using parts of the seafood that usually you wouldn't use to be able to make them into something amazing that you can eat. For instance, like a you know a, a sausage that's made with all the the scraps of the power that we've done a lot with um, so we don't waste anything so kind of our golden thing that we do though is our ham um, mm. I love ham I got addicted to ham in Spain I think I nearly got gout when I was 26 because of Capa Negra <laughs> and um, that wasn't too good I was like my big toe hurts the doctor he said what do you eat I said well I eat foie gras and ham every day <laughs> and alcohol <laughs> And he said to me, you need to eat salad, Vaughan. You, you know, I think you might be getting gout. You're 26 years old. You'll be coming your I own said, charcuterie project. <laughs> yeah, I was turning myself into a New Zealand ham. Um, so, you know, I currently don't eat it every day anymore. But I do snack from time to time on ham. And um, I I love making ham in the environment down here. And, um, you know, some, some ham can take you know three and a half to four years before it's finished yes, so a bit of pay, patience and stuff on that so and has that come from from those days in san sebastian oh yeah bits and pieces like i went to um some places like in valencia and other parts of spain where i actually went and did some volunteer work to kind of um just kind of get the gist of how they do some of these hams so my old chef used to be sponsored by a ham company mm. so they used to come and give us like 20 hams every now and then and break them down for us and they're like you know premium ham uh cup of negra uh, uh Oh, I miss, and, uh, I miss those days. They, they were so good. Oh, yeah. me too. Yeah. Isn't your husband Spanish? Yeah, but I was in Spain for f- nearly five years with him and uh, I just, I miss the hams so much. It was a big part of it. Tu hablas español, Kelly? Ah, poquito. Para mí, oh, un vino no. tinto, por favor. <laughs> That's about all I can say. <laughs> and by the time I get that out yeah, and remember funny. how to say it, the bar would be shut usually, so... <laughs> There you go. <laughs> One of the things that I admire most about you is that you involve your team every step of the way. You've got a cast of incredible characters out the back there working with you. Tell me a little bit about them. Yeah, well, the team's been here with me for most of nearly half a decade. So um, what I do as a chef is quite quirky, kind of do things a lot different to other people. Because when I first came back, I was like, oh, shit what the hell am I going to cook, you know, like if I'm a chef in New Zealand, because I was used to, I was running a test kitchen at Martin Brizzatigi, and it was all about, you know, bubbles and explosions and magical flower clouds flying in rainbow skies with unicorns and shit. And then like that, uh, you know, that kind of style, even though we we're doing it there, that, I've been inspired by many restaurants, but when you cook in New Zealand, you can't use any of that. You have to create your own style. and Identity, um, yeah. I think that's one of the most difficult things of being a chef is actually creating that. 
and um, you know mine's molded over the last few years. But most people that will eat my food these days, they know if they know me, they know that that's my food, you know, um, because of the way it tastes. I've got a certain style. It's very product driven, but I think for me, I've never really hired a sous chef or a head chef or anything in my time here. Uh, they always come from the bottom to the top um, because you could put one of my sous chefs right now, like Matthew or Jacques, uh, next to you know someone that had far more experience in, um, in this kitchen if they were next to them. They just wouldn't be able to do what they do, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Because they've just been with me for so long. They know, you know, I don't even have to say things. I can do eye movements at them and they know exactly what I mean, you know. So it's like we all mold together. We're like clock. Um, Incredible. I have like an old crew here and then we have young, a younger crew. So, I, you know, I have Matthew and Jacques. So they're both brothers and they've been, you know, they've come out of young training and Michelin star restaurants in France and then, they moved to uh, Australia, and they were working together in this re- cool restaurant with a cool French chef called uh, Cottage Point, I think it's called, mm-hmm. outside Sydney somewhere. And um, then I-, I hired them in early 2016, and they've been with me ever since. So now Matthew runs the kitchen. They're like sometimes when I try to do something, he's like, "Please, chef, no, go away, don't touch." He's like, "You're gonna mess it up." I'm like, "Okay, mate, yeah, cool." <laughs> so his younger brother Jacques, he's one of the sous chefs. Then I have another sous chef, uh, Jose. He's from Mexico, and uh, he's very talented, and he has a lot of insight into the menu as to the two brothers. So we all kind of work together. Uh, my pastry chef is from England. Uh, she's amazing, Becky. She, I think she's been with me for nearly half a decade as well. I've got my dishwasher. He's been with me for, I think, seven years total. Big Nick. He's from uh, Omaru. So my team's about half the size of it used to be. Mm. You know, we used to have about 20 chefs or plus sometimes with all the stars in the kitchen. Um, so the reduction in the team is because of COVID? We closed the restaurant for quite a long time. Uh, we reopened currently Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, lunch and dinner. So I have one team, one dream, whereas before we used to be open seven days a week. You know, we've got quite a few stages in there uh, that work for like three months as like an apprentice thing coming out of the Cordon Bleu, sometimes Paris or Wellington. They're pretty keen and, you know, young uh, chefs that are, uh, they, they do like a little apprenticeship. Uh, and then once they finish their apprenticeship, they go back to culinary school and graduate. Mm. And then I, I have a couple of young Kiwis in there. I've got uh, Jackson, did a little time in Copenhagen for a bit. And he was um, at Roots for a while. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, yep. Then we have uh, the Westie, Maddie P. They're both 20 or 21. So we've got another young Kiwi that is a chef's party of snacks. You know, we're kind of taking it day by day. Uh, We're lucky here. I don't know what's going on with other restaurants in Queensland, but we're sold out like every day right now. It's hard to get a table right now. And that's terrific to hear because I remember talking to you as we kind of spiralled out of level three. Or I think we were just approaching lockdown. And you were, it was weird, you know, it was almost like I just want to stop. I want to get off for a while and wait and see what happens. You weren't going to go spiralling into, you know, doing takeaways and all that sort of thing. You just, you were like, okay, it's time to just stop. 
yeah, at first I didn't want any takeaways because that's not my jam. Mm. But then I think it was Tony. He was like, why don't you do like VIP pies? And then I looked at him and I was like, I love pies. <laughs> <laughs> and then we ended up doing that. And actually it was out of control. Yeah. We were in the weeds, eh? Yeah. Everyone in this bloody Otago was ordering these I know. Uh, blue I was cod and so pleased wild to see venice that. and a yeah. black truffle. And, of yeah. course, I made them way too out of control fancy. So everyone was in the fucking weeds like, <laughs> trying to make all these leaves out of black truffle pastry and just, like, sweating hard. We had well, – oh, I, think, I think it was Mother's Day. I don't, I can't remember how many people ordered it, but it was, like, out of control. We did, like, more money selling pies in one day than we usually do in a busy service in the restaurant. It was out of control. You, you wouldn't know? want to do that all the time, though, huh? No. Well – if less people ordered it, it would be all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of good just to get in the kitchen and get out of your house and giving some, you know, good stuff out to the community and all that kind of stuff. So it was probably a good thing for us to do. Um, and it was good for the chefs to just be back in action and be together again and just kind of feel like a team, you know? Yeah. How has it changed you, Vaughan? Has it changed you, uh, your approach as a chef, do you think? Not really. Like, I... I'm pretty aggressive with what I do in general. Like if people tell me to change, I'm like, no. We've done certain things. Like here, for instance, one, our lunch menu is shorter. Uh, you know, we used to do a very long uh, just degustation menu at lunch, and it was quite pricey. And we've brought down our prices and to you know, cater towards the, the people here. Before, it was like people would come here all the time. But after me being here for a while – it's more of a destination or a celebration place to come, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, it's our 40th anniversary. Let's go to Am- Amersfield or, or, you know, like a wedding thing or birthdays and You're stuff like that. You're a destination, yeah. Yeah, exactly, you know. I mean, you know, we've heard people over the years say when they're coming to Queenstown, they, you know, they book a table first at Amersfield before they book their ticket so they can get a table, you know what I mean, from overseas. Mm. It is a destination place, and it will be again. But um, I think we've found, like, a niche where we want to be also there for New Zealand and for, uh, you know, the the tourists that will eventually come back. Mm. Because, you know, right now, like, you walk out in the dining room, every single person there, you know, you've got 50 people seated right now, they're all from New Zealand, every single one of them. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the same with dinner. And it's quite funny because the New Zealanders in general get my food a lot better. Yeah. My ideas come from growing up in New Zealand and things that I've eaten as a kid. So some people from New Zealand, when they dine here, they have that experience that I really wanted to give. Yeah. Because they remember things that I remember that made me do that. You they know connect. What I mean? They have those same food um, memories that you have. Yeah, we mm-hmm. have it happen every now and then, you know, like – one last year, which was funny, was when that uh, Karina and Casey came in, mm-hmm. and Karina was eating the food and she started crying. Oh, because it like awesome. hit her emotions, you know. Yes, yes. So it's like you know, it's like little things like that that you you kind of try to do. Like I don't want people to cry, but um, you know, <laughs> in a good way. Uh, she might have had too much. <laughs> she might have had too much champagne. I hope she hears that. Um, you know, so we we have changed in that sense, and now. We used to just do the long tasting menu in the night time. We've shortened it right now to uh, five courses. Now we're bringing back the big one as well. 
But uh, one other thing that we've changed as well is that now where the cellar was, there's tables in there now, and we've put artwork from beautiful uh, Fiona Partington and decked it out, and it's this huge bar with all the our new wine list with all the French champagnes and all that kind of stuff and like epic cocktails and there's a bar menu. So the bar menu is really cool. Oh, it's like wow, a, that sounds uh, amazing. Yeah. So you, yeah, you can go in there and have a glass of wine and just pick a few little uh, things off the bar menu. They're like kind of like New Zealand tuppers or whatever. And um, that's become super popular with the locals. Yeah. And you cannot get a seat in that bar in the nighttime because it's always packed. And you don't have to make a commitment then to a full tasting menu. You can just go and have some really great food. Yeah, exactly. So you can go a shorter menu, the full Monty, or you can just lax out, have some cocktails and have some snacks at the bar a la carte. Well, I, I think I've answered your question, have we changed from that lockdown thing? Yeah, we have a lot. Everything's the same, but there's other things that we've produced around the same that are different. Mm. So let me take you you back a little bit. After being named New Zealand's most innovative chef at the Cuisine Good Food Awards, and then you had, obviously, with the Power Pie, you won um, Dish of the Year. Last year, you went on to take out the coveted Chef of the Year title and also take home three hats for Amersfield. I watched you cry on Instagram on awards night. Um, so that was, you know, yeah, that... that was because of my, you know, why that happened, right? So I don't usually cry unless I get shot or stabbed or something, but <laughs> I, I can't believe it. I said that. Um, <laughs> the reason I did cry was because my dad was at the awards uh, dinner. You know, we, we did it in the entire of Jack's Point, there were hundreds of people there and stuff, and it was quite a cool night. We had a full bar, it was like a big party, and um, when I when that came up, because he's quite a hard guy, you know what I mean? He's a rusty sailor, kind of Captain Paul, you know? Um, yeah. And he doesn't show a lot of emotion. Like, I think I've hugged him like three times. And um, when I when they said that, when I looked at him, I could see that he was teary-eyed. Yeah. So I'd never really seen him cry before. So that was what made me cry. Yeah. So I'm making an excuse for crying like a girl. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to make excuses. I absolutely no. Loved you, it. We, we, it you was, know, that, it wasn't. It was emotional for their team as well, because everyone had worked so long and hard for many, many of years to get there, and uh, we had wanted it for a long time. You know, for a few years. But I think, um, you know, in the last couple of years, we changed a lot. Yeah. yeah. And um, now it's getting even better because now we with Tony, it's like, you know, before. It was good, but now I think with me and him together, it feels great. Yeah, you know? I, I, I tell you, with you, with Tony there with you, you're going to be a force to be reckoned with. I thought it was lovely last time I was there, actually. I saw that Tony had bought the three hats from Clooney and put them on the pass there. Yeah, he gave me that gift from his restaurant, those yeah. metal hats that he had on the outside. Yeah, that was a cool gift, man. That's so, that was, so that cool. Was cool. So, listen, talking yeah. about awards, um, you and I both – have uh, over the years been watching the world's 50 best very closely. How are we ever going to get them to take New Zealand seriously? You know, honestly, it's nothing to do with anything. It's all to do with what the person's doing. That's my strong belief. You know what I mean? If you're good enough to be on that list, you'll be on that list. Mm. It's not because they don't come here. It's because you need to do something magical. It's better than someone else that's on the list, and then you're on the list. So you what are you going to do? So that... that I'm just going to do what I do. Waiting, you know? waiting, I, patiently. You know, I, I, I want to be I want to be on that list, you know. I've worked in a lot of restaurants on that list and I 
Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, the industry worldwide has been thrown into a tailspin. They're not doing it this year. So it's good, in a sense, because it gets everyone time to catch up. You know, it wouldn't be fair to a lot of people. A lot of restaurants are in a worse spot than others. You know, New York's had a hard time. A lot of Spain's pretty screwed. You know, it's like it wouldn't be fair to run it. No. Because people just don't understand the emotions and the passion behind a lot of people that are trying to get there or being on it or trying to get up and uh, the list or whatever. And I think that, you know, a break for the world on that is a good thing for everyone, you know, because if you're on it, then you stay on it. And then if you're not, you know, you you have a little bit more chance to prepare yourself for the next time. I think it's not the time at the moment for anybody to be doing that sort of thing. The industry needs to have time to recover and then to find out what the new thing is. Yeah, I mean, people are changing their their things by the time of the world right now, you know. I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure if uh, nomads and judges in there eating burgers, they're not going to get the number one. Everybody knew that they were going to get number one this year. Everyone knows that. People that have three Michelin stars could have one star right now, you know what I mean? No, it's not because the time. they're doing, they're changing what they do. They've got less staff, they have less clients. It's like, you know, it's uh, not the same. You know? But what do you say to the people that are saying, oh, the fine dining, you know, the high end of restaurants will, will never come back? Oh, I don't know. Why is the restaurant busy today? Fine dining can still work if it's done right, you know, it's not like that's ever going to go away, you know. If you really don't like fine dining, go eat at home. All right. So what? Cook yourself. What's well? That's actually what's been really interesting about all of this is the reconnection to the kitchen. But I think in the long run, that's made people they'll want even more when they go out now to have a real premium experience. If they, you know, if they know how to cook, they'll expect it to be good. There's always going to be, you know, uh, you know, a, a gap a gap there for you know simple, uh, great tasting restaurants, something in between. Something that, um, you know, is more like a destination restaurant. It's a beautiful place where you're going to eat a lot of things that you've never tried before or techniques you've never seen that are kind of going to get you, uh, you know, wow you. I mean, people love that. A lot of people are saying fine dining's done. I I, I don't personally think it is. I think maybe if you're in a town where there's 50 fine dining restaurants, you know, maybe that needs to scale back a bit, but there's still going to be a spot for the best ones in that town. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, I hope everyone is uh, doing well in New Zealand and the, the, the restaurant scene or getting better. I know a lot of people have been going for a real rough time and there's been a lot of resiliencies and there's been a lot of places that have closed. And, you know, at this time, being a chef, you know, in New Zealand, I always feel like I want to, always help all the other comrades and stuff um you know and if anyone ever needs a hand or any advice or whatever you know everyone should know that a lot of people like me i'm i'm willing to um you know put out my hand i mean i've got i've got a few people that are that have have been here hanging out lately uh in the kitchen and having fun with us you're not bad for a kiwi kid who never went to a culinary school vaughn i think you've done all right (laughs) Yeah, well, I still feel like I'm just getting started. So, uh, what, what, what do they say? Watch this space. That's kind of weird, but check me out soon. Many thanks to Vaughan for sharing just a glimpse inside the mind of one of our most brilliant chefs. 
If you haven't yet experienced Amersfield, you need to make a trip to gorgeous Arrowtown a priority this year. Cuisine Bites, brought to you by Gaganau. Follow us on social at Cuisine Magazine or online at cuisine.co.nz and I'll meet you back here for another episode of Cuisine Bites very soon. Oh, and I need to tell you that the Tony that Vaughan referred to a few times during our conversation is none other than Tony Stewart, renowned Auckland restaurateur named Restaurant Personality of the Year at the Cuisine Good Food Awards 2018 for his incredible work at his restaurant Clooney. Tony's now working with Vaughan as Food and Beverage Director at Amersfield. What's next for Vaughan and Amersfield Bistro then? You have um, the incredible Tony Stewart well, we, with well, you. Well, and... it's not that anymore. It's Amersfield Restaurant. We changed the name. Oh, when did that happen? Yesterday. <laughs> have I got a scoop? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amersfield, uh, Amersfield Restaurant and Cellar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, well, what I was... I wasn't even supposed to say that. Uh, it's all right. I won't tell anyone. We're in the cone of silence. Yeah. <laughs> Even though we're on a podcast, yeah, all right. 